0: Now a little bit of humor. Um, Yesterday, again, Auburn played Alabama, uh, a strong tradition with rivalry that is almost boundless year after year. This joke goes back about 35 years, maybe longer, when Bear Bryant was the coach of Alabama. And here's the story. Alabama and Auburn were playing in one of the most crucial games of the year. Alabama was leading by five points. Two minutes were left in the game. Alabama had the ball 20 yards away from the goal line. On first down, the number one quarterback was injured. Coach Bryant sent in his number two man. Before sending him in, Bryant gave him strict instructions. He was not under any circumstances to throw the ball. He was to run the ball three downs, even if if he did not gain a yard. By that time, the game would be almost over, and the defense would hold hold them. On second down, Alabama was stopped dead. On third down, they gained a yard. Fourth down, the quarterback turned to hand off the ball but missed the handoff. He began to run, and when he did, he spotted a receiver open in the end zone. What a chance to lock the game up. He could not resist the chance to be a hero, so he lofted a pass to his open receiver. What he did not notice was the safety for the other side, the other team only a few yards away. This All-American safety happened to be the fastest man on the field. As soon as the ball was in the air, the safety cut in front of the receiver, pulled the ball in, and it headed for the other end zone. All of a sudden, like a flash, the quarterback caught up with the safety, the swift safety, and tackled him on the two-yard line just as the clock ran out. Alabama won. After the game, the Auburn coach asked Bear Bryant, I've read the scouting reports. That quarterback is supposed to be slow. How is it that he caught up with the fastest man on the field? Bear, Bear Bryant replied, It's simple. Your man was running for a touchdown. My man was running for his life. <laughs> there may be truth to that. Let me get this up here. doesn't have a thing to do with what we're going to talk about today. The question may be asked, what do you think about when you're all by yourself? Nobody else around you. You're in solitude. What do you think about? That probably is a revelation of who you are. It may indicate your priorities in life. But the problem is nobody else knows what it is that's just between you yourself and God. The only one that would know it is you. In fact, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 2:11. Who of men knows the things of a man, the spirit of a man except the spirit of the man that is in him? Which is a very interesting quotation because it indicates all people, saved and lost, have a spirit. There are some who say lost people do not have a spirit. They gain a spirit when they trust in Christ. No, all people have a spirit, spirit, soul, and body. But a lost person's spirit is separated from the Lord. A person who trusts in Christ becomes one with God. You come to know Him. You're one. But you only know it yourself. Perhaps the greatest demonstration externally is what are you in your home? That's when you take your shoes off. That's when you say what you would like to say normally. That's normally what you do when you, what you do when you want to do something at home. You're just free. But that's not really a revelation of yourself. What is really a revelation of yourself is how do you react at home? What's your response when somebody suddenly says something you hadn't expected? What do you do? in some emergency. What is your response? That is what you really are. The home is a great revelation of the Christian faith. And so it is, Paul emphasizes the home in the passage that's before us. So if you will, turn to Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three has a marvelous introduction In fact, you look at chapter one, you look at your outline as the doctrine of who Christ is and what he's done. If your soul becomes a little cool, I just challenge you to read Hebrews chapter one and Colossians chapter one. Those two chapters exalt Christ like few other chapters. Who is Christ? What has he done? In chapter two, he puts down false doctrine, the doctrine of Greek philosophy, and the doctrine of Judaism. But at the same time, in that chapter, he talks about what Christ has done. Then in chapter 3, he applies it to our lives. Interestingly, he says, you have put off the old man, you have put on the new man. Here's the cross. Before Christ, you're the old man, the person without Christ. You come to Christ, and when you trust in Christ, you are put into Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, or in Christo, is what we find over and over again in Pauline literature. So if you're in Christ, you died with Christ when He's on the cross. You are buried with him. You are resurrected. You are ascended with Christ. And you have put on the new man. So he says, you have put off the old man. You have put on the new man. Then he says, put off the old man. Put on the new man. He just said, you have put off the old man. He's talking about, Positionally, this is past. Positionally, this is where you are now. Now live like that. Put off the old man in his practices. Put on the new man in his practices. Then he comes to a climax in chapter three, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We introduce the class with us, him, May the mind of Christ my Savior. This is what that's all about. May Christ have dominion. May he be the Lord of your lives and all you say and do, and you give thanks. Now, what an introduction to the paragraph to follow. What a segue to life in the home. And he discusses wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. Now, let me introduce this by saying there are several areas of authority that are distinct from one another in the Bible, in the New Testament particularly. There are four. The first area of, and the primary one, is your relationship to God. And of course, we are to submit our way to God, we are to put ourselves under His control. That's number one. Number two is the family. That's second in priority. What, what is the realm of authority? What, is the, what are the echelons of authority in the home? Number three is the church. You very, very seldom hear about this one. But Hebrews chapter 13 said that the congregation is to be under the authority of the elders. But First Peter chapter 5 tells about the attitude of the elders. The attitude of the elders is not to lord it over the flock, but to be examples. What a balance. But the congregation has a responsibility to obey the elders, and the elders have a responsibility of living in such a way that they become examples. And then the fifth, or the fourth one, is the government. We are to be in submission to the government, according to uh, Romans chapter 13. Although Peter says... In Acts chapter 5, we ought to be God rather than men. The point being, you obey the government until it's a sin to obey. Obey the government until it's a sin to obey. But here we have the home. Now, it's interesting, when he talks about the household, he has wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, masters. He always gives the one that has the least authority first. Wives, husband. Children, parents. Slaves, master. And that's a, that's a pattern. You have the same thing in Ephesians 5. And when Peter talks about authority in the home between a husband and wife, he starts with a wife. Now, if I ask myself, why is it that he starts with the, with the one that has the least authority? And I'm not sure. I can't be dogmatic on this at all. But probably he does it because he's dealing with the one that has the most difficult position, the one that is under authority. So let's start with the wives. We read in verse 18, "Wives be subject to your husband, husbands, as is fitting in the Lord." The Greek literally says, "The women subject yourselves to the men." <laughs> now, if you read that, if you take that literally, it would mean all women are to be in submission to all men. It obviously, it doesn't mean that. We all know that the word woman commonly means wife, and the word man commonly read means husband. Some of you may remember I grew up in Hinkley, Minnesota, where the men are men and pansies are flowers, and the women are slightly above average. Well, when I grew up, there were some pretty earthy people around Hinkley, And a lady would stick her head in the hardware store where we worked, and and they'd say, have you seen my man here? And she meant my husband. Or a husband husband one time told my dad, my dad never got over this until his dying day. This this, (laughs) this farmer said, my woman, she ain't so pretty for nice, but she's good for strong. (laughs) And when he said woman, he was not using that in deprecatory term, he just meant it as, as wife. In fact, the term woman has the idea almost of ma'am, but it's not re- referring to a, 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 a wife or a woman. On the cross, Christ looked down and he saw Mary and John the Apostle. He said, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Sometimes, when in a group of people, I'll say to my wife, Woman, it's time to go home. And people laugh. My wife hates that. Well, I mean it nicely. I mean it, ma'am. <laughs> no ITs are I when to do that, obviously. But here it means wives. Wives, be in submission to your husbands. The word submit here is very, the word submission or be in submission is very interesting. It's huputaso. Tasso means to arrange things, to put them in order. Hupo, underneath. Arrange things under, which comes to mean, of course, be in submission. And this is present tense. You don't do it once in your lifetime. You don't do it when you get married. It means all your lifetime, constantly be in submission. Present tense, over and over and over again. That's difficult. Interestingly, this is middle voice. We don't have middle voice in English. We have active voice, passive voice. This is middle. When you have the middle voice in Greek, it means the subject is particularly involved in the action. So it means, wives, submit yourselves. You've got to make that decision. Wives, be in submission to the husbands. For this is proper. This is what's right. Now interestingly, Paul in Colossians is just stark, just bing, bing, bing. You turn to this sister epistle, which is the sister epistle of Colossians is Ephesians. So I'll slip back to Ephesians. And look what Paul says here. This is very interesting. Ephesians chapter five. It says in verse twenty two, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, you'll notice the the words be subject are in italics. That means they're not in the original Greek text. Well, how do you get be subject? Well, you go back one verse, and you read in verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Ah, interesting. There are evangelical women libbers. And they just chafe under this idea of wives being in submission to their husbands. So they say, look at verse 21. Be subject to one another. That's mutual subjection. So when a wife is to be subject to her husband, that's mutual subjection. The husband is to be subject to the wife and the wife to the husband. They argue from verse 21. The trouble is that it goes on to say the husband is the head of the wife. Well, they get around that by saying, well, the the word head here means source. Adam was the source of Eve. So they say it means source. Well, that argument has been pretty well discounted because it goes on to say that the wife is to be subject as the church is to Christ. You can't get away from the idea of subjection. The fact, in fact, you find that not only here and in Colossians, but also in 1 Peter chapter 3 which we may look at later if we have time. The passage here says wives are to be subject. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you find that the wife has to be subject because she was created on account of man. You remember the creation story in Genesis chapter 2? God said it's not good for man to dwell alone. He's talking about Adam. It's not well for Adam to Be alone. I'll make a, the King James says, help meet. What it merely means is I'll make a helper that corresponds with him. So God took a rib from Adam's side and from that fashioned a wife. I know you've heard this before many times. He did not take a, a bone from the head for the wife to be an intellectual playmate. He did not take a bone from the foot for the wife to be a doormat. He took a wife from the side so that the husband would have an arm to protect her and to love her and a heart to show passion to her. That's true. That God created the woman for Adam to love and to cherish. But at the same time, it says, a helper meet for him. Now, this, or a helper that corresponds with him. Now, that's very interesting. This is before the sin, the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, so that from the beginning the woman was subject to the husband. That is exacerbated by Adam and Eve's sin. Remember in chapter 3, when God pronounced judgment on the various parties involved, he first of all pronounced judgment on, on Satan, the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You shall crush, or you shall bruise or crush his heel. He, the seed of the woman, will crush your head. Then he turns to the woman. He talks to the woman and says, you're going to have pain in childbirth. And the last sentence is, your husband will rule over you. You can't get away from it. The whole concept in the Bible as the wife to be in submission to the husband. Very, very interesting. Now, with that in view, let's go back to Colossians and look at the husband's responsibility. Very quickly, the husband's. Verse 19, Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Husbands, love your wives. Now, there are a number of words for love in the New Testament. The one is the word storge, S-T-O-R-G-E, which looks at family love, the love of a parent for a child, the love of a child for a mother. It's just the natural affection that you have. The second word is the word erao, E-R-A-O, or eros, E-R-O-S. And you can tell immediately this is looking at erotic love. Sexual love. Amazingly, this word, in any of its cognates, does not occur in the New Testament. Now there's nothing wrong with sex, but if you use the word sex today, it often has tones that are not pure, not clean. And it may be that for that reason, it's never used. Now the scriptures are very obvious, in the fact that sex is an obligation, the husband owes the wife, and the wife owes the husband. That's very clear in First Corinthians chapter 7, where it says, Husbands, pay your debt to your wife, and your wife pay your debt to your husband. Don't defraud one another. That's what the word means. Don't defraud one another. He's just talking about sexual relationships. Unless it be by mutual consent, that you may give yourselves to prayer. <laughs> well, how long do you pray? It, it, it's very clear that this is an obligation that God expects of husbands and wives. So that's the, that's the word eros or erao. Uh, the third word is a common word that you hear over and over again, agape, A-G-A-P-E, or agapo. If you, uh, or agapao in the, the old way, but the modern way is agapo. If you want to say to your wife, I love you, just say sagapo, sagapo. Se, means you, agapao, or agapo, I love. Sagapo, I love you. That's the word that's used here. Husbands, love your wife. Oh, I forgot one more. Philos, the third word is philos, Uh, p-h-i-l-o-s, or philae. P-H-I-L-E. And that has more the idea of an emotional love. We see it in Philadelphia. Phil, there you have the word philos or phile. Adelphia, brother. So it's brother love. It's an emotional love. Fine, good love. But the word we're after is agapo, agapao. When you have agapao or agapo, there are two main themes One is to put a high value on something. 1 John 2.15, don't love the world or the things in the world. Don't make that a priority in your life. If you do, you're going to be disengaged from Christ spiritually. Don't put a priority on the world. Husbands, love your wives? She's a precious jewel. She's valuable. She's someone that you highly esteem. The second aspect of it is to seek the well-being of somebody. Agapao, or agapo, means you seek what's best. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God confirmed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us in that he seeks our well-being. Uh, we won't take that time right now, but in 1 Peter chapter 3, where um, Peter talks about the wife being a submission to the husband. I may read this in a minute. And where the husband is to esteem his wife as a, as a partner in the faith, he says uh, she is the weaker Vessel. Now, there's been a lot of debate, what does that mean? I think probably it means physically. She's just not physically as strong as the husband. (laughs) Until the husband gets to be old, but until then, he, he is obviously stronger. You can't expect that woman to do the physical work of the wife. She's the weaker vessel. I illustrate this sometimes by my dad's hardware store. We had a heavy coffee mug, a heavy, thick coffee mug. We sold for two for 15 cents. And to demonstrate how strong it was, my dad would take that cup and pound it on that pine floor and literally put dents in that floor. And I've had people say, here, here, stop it. I'll buy it. I'll buy it. Uh, Two for 15 cents, a heavy coffee mug. And then I learned about fine china, fine, nice coffee cups. In fact, one time in Hong Kong, I used this illustration, and somebody gave us a a cup that was so thin and fine I was almost afraid to touch it. Now think of your wife as a fine china cup. Precious. And you want to seek her well-being. Husbands, love your wives. Now let's go back to Ephesians. And we're going to see that the husband has the more difficult task. Interesting. Turn to Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty-five. Husbands, love your wives. Same verb. Just as Christ also loved the church, and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with with the Word, that He might present to Himself and so on. Husbands. Love your wives like Christ loved the church. That's impossible. That's a standard that no man in this room has ever met. That's why I say the husband actually has the more difficult role. Why? Be in submission as the church is to Christ. But husbands, love your wives like Christ loved us. That's impossible. We have a huge, huge responsibility. Interesting, S. Lewis Johnson, when he was talking about the Colossian passage, wrote these words. A professor once said, quote, marriage is an educational institution in which a man loses his bachelor's degree without acquiring a master's degree. Then Johnson goes on to say this. The husband's practice of the type of love Paul has in mind is the shortest cut to the coveted MM, Master of Marriage. That's beautiful. To follow what this says, we husbands are given MM, a Master of Marriage degree. We husbands have a huge responsibility. Now, follow me carefully. Wives be in submission of your husbands. It would be easy for a wife to be in submission of a husband who loves her like Christ loved the church. It's not that difficult for a husband. If he puts his wife first, esteems her, looks out for her well-being, faithful as his wedding vows, mm. then she can, be, she can be in submission. It's a beautiful, beautiful combination. But you can't get away from it. This is a priority of the Bible. Well, now let's move very quickly to the children. Colossians chapter 3 once again. Colossians chapter 3. We read in verse 20, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. This is what God expects. Did you notice there's a change in vocabulary? The wife is to be in submission. The children are to obey. That's a stronger word. (laughs) In the old... The old marriage vows, it used to be said, will you obey him, talking to the wife? Will you obey him? Well, that's been pretty much expunged from marriage vows today. But there is the idea for the children to obey their parents. Now let's go back to Ephesians. Very, very interesting. Ephesians chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Obey your children in the Lord. Which indicates, again, that if the parents ask the children to lie, cheat, steal, no, that that's not in the Lord. Their obedience, of course, is limited to do what's right, not to, not to do what's sin. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth, or on the land, would be a better translation. Now, I've heard this said over and over again by good Bible teachers. Children who obey their parents will live longer. Is that true? Well, yes. If, if, if a mother says to a, to a child, I don't want you to ride your tricycle on Preston Road. Well, obviously the child that obeys the parent is going to live longer. You're not going to be run over while he or she is riding her tricycle. But that's not what the the verse is talking about. That your days may belong in the land. This is is what you have in Exodus chapter 20. But you go to Deuteronomy chapter 5. That your days may belong in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And when you look at that little expression, we're not going to take the time to do that, but when you look at that expression, the land which the Lord your God gives you, he's talking about living in the land as a nation. So this gives a whole new thrust. Children, obey your parents. Honor your parents. That Israel may exist as a nation for a long time. Do you get the point? I'm Sure you do if children are not taught to be in obedience to their parents, they'll have no respect for any authority. It's got to start in the home. So that children must be taught to honor, to obey their parents in the Lord. If they don't do that, there's mayhem. That's one reason why we have so many problems in schools. I'll never forget an illustration that Chuck used at Mount Hermon. I happened to be on the speaking schedule with him, and uh, he gave this illustration. I hope I won't offend you by the vocabulary. He used the illustration of an excellent schoolteacher who taught fifth grade. She was highly esteemed. She was married, and she expected a child. So she, she dropped her teaching career to give birth to that child, and to be with that child until it was of school age. When it became of school age, she went back to teaching. So she greeted her fifth graders like she always did. Good morning, children. And a little boy in the first row said, Oh, shut up, you bitch. When Chuck said, I just just bolted. But it shows what's happened to our children. There's no respect for authority including policemen, including the government, including laws. And when you have that, the nation is doomed. That's what he is saying. Obey your parents. Be in submission to your parents that your days may be long in Israel, in the the promised land. Otherwise, you're doomed. I don't think I need to say more, but we need to teach our children to be in submission. Well, Let's move on back to Colossians once again. We read in chapter 3 and verse 21, Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. It has the idea of don't irritate your children. Now, wouldn't this be a great discussion question? How do fathers irritate the children? Oh, by the way, did you notice know He goes from children that will be your parents to fathers, because fathers are usually the ones that are ultimately in authority for discipline. <laughs> you have heard this, wait until your daddy comes home, because the father ultimately has the authority for discipline. So fathers, do not irritate your children. Wouldn't it be a great discussion question How do you irritate your children? How can you? Oh, many ways. Never expressing love. Never expressing any appreciation. Never complimenting the child. Instead, just running them down. You'll never amount to anything. You're not worth anything. You clumsy ox, and so on. Or just constantly, Belittling, be, belittling them for their for the lack of accomplishment. My wife grew up in a family which was very affirming, the parents affirmed. My family was not, but they did it in indirect ways. <laughs> for instance, uh, my dad never complimented me on my work at the hardware store. But at a family gathering, a uncle took me aside and said, Stan, your dad says you're the best clerk he's got in the store. Dad would never tell me that. I never heard Dad say, I love you. Never. Not my whole life. But I know he did. I know he did. Um, he would um, he would take me out hunting, just the two of us. He would say, Stan, instead of coming down the hardware store after school tonight, just put on our hunting clothes and let's go hunting. And we got there one time we were out hunting for partridge and pheasant. We couldn't. Stir up anything. So we sat down on a log, pulled up, each one pulled up a rutabaga from the farmer's field, and with our knives we peeled it. And there we sat in that log eating raw rutabagas. I'll never forget that time. Or uh, many times, just the two of us would go fishing. And he would express love for for me in many, many, many ways like that. So I was affirmed. I know. Um, I'd come home with four A's and one B, and he'd say, "What did you get the B? No, oh, that's wonderful that you had four A's. But I knew every time when the honor roll came out in the Hinkley News, he wanted my name and my sister's name on that honor roll. And he was proud of that. I I knew that. But he never said, uh, you got a B. The only time he would... Well, in fact, he didn't even say anything about my grade in conduct. I'd often get a C. One time he got a D in conduct. And then all he said to me was, Stan, you'd better straighten up. That's all he said, you'd better straighten up. But otherwise, he wanted those A's on the card. That's what he was after. But he affirmed me in many, many ways. Gave me responsibilities uh, way beyond my age. So I knew he loved me and trusted me. So don't, don't exasperate your children. In fact, he says that they may not lose heart. That's exactly what the verb means. So they don't just give up. I'm not worth anything. I'll never amount to anything. No, 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 no. That's a horrible thing to do. It's interesting that... um, That children never stop being children. Honor your father and your mother. Of course, that means as children. But it's interesting in the Gospels when a parent had a financial need and a person went to, uh, uh, the parents went to the child to ask for some help financially, and the people say, Oh, it's dedicated to God, I can't give it to you. He says, You've broken the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Honor when it's older means you take care of them financially. You provide for your parents. That's clearly seen in First Timothy chapter 5. Honor widows who are widows indeed. Who is a widow indeed? Well, it's a widow that doesn't have any income, and she does not have any children. If there are children, they have to take care of the mother. And that's when it says, if you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an infidel. Every insurance salesman knows that verse. If you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an infidel. And what they mean is that you as a parent should take care of your children. But it's the opposite here. You as a child should take care of your parents. Watch over your parents. You never stop being a child. You're to constantly honor your parents. So let's move on very quickly. Now we come to slaves. Now, interestingly, verse 18, one verse for wives. Verse 19, one verse for husbands. Verse 20, one verse for children. Verse 21, one verse for fathers. Slaves, verse 22, 23, 24, 25, the rest of the chapter. And then when you come to Masters, chapter 4, verse 1, one verse. How do you account for this strange disparagement? One verse for all the others, and all these verses for slaves. I think it can be explained in two ways. Number one, there were so many slaves in the Roman Empire. It is estimated that almost half of the Roman population was comprised of slaves. They were medical doctors, professors, attorneys who were slaves. It didn't mean that they had a low kind of a job. Some did, obviously. So it just looked at the number of slaves in the Roman Empire. But I think there's a second reason. Remember I said that Ephesians and Colossians are sister epistles written at the same time carried by one man, Tychicus, to churches only 100 miles apart. Well, actually, there's a third epistle written at the same time, Philemon. Philemon, Ephesians, Colossians were all written at the same time by the Apostle Paul. Now, this is where the plot becomes interesting. Philemon lived in Colossae. Philemon had a slave by the name of Onesimus, and uh, Onesimus— evidently stole some money the reason we say that because Paul says in the letter to Philemon if he owes you anything put it on my account so the implication is that Onesimus had stolen something and Onesimus made his way all the way from Colossae to Rome a long journey in some way he came into contact with Paul and Paul led Onesimus a runaway slave to the Lord now, being a runaway slave was very dangerous. You could be killed on the spot. So here's Paul. With a runaway slave on his hands, he had led to the Lord. And when he writes to Philemon, he said, I found Onesimus to be very useful, very useful to me. But I didn't want to keep him without your, without your, your regard, so I'm sending him back to you. In that little one-chapter book, Philemon, was clutched by Onesimus as he made his way all the way back with Tychicus from Rome to Colossae. Now, interestingly, the book of Philemon says to Philemon, and the church which is in your house. Because when Onesimus returned, it would have been a scandal. Here's this no-good, renegade, runaway slave showing up at home, and Paul says, Welcome him as a brother." You can tell the other slaves would be very upset. This is not fair. You're taking this runaway, no-good slave back as a brother? That's not fair. So there are these words to slaves, how they should operate. So let's look at it very quickly. I think there's nothing here that needs a lot of attention. But slaves in all things obey—the same verb—obey those who are your masters on earth, it means according to the flesh, literally, human masters, not with external service. Now, I'm sorry for that translation. Here the King James is far, far better. Not as eye-pleasers, not as I servants It's a word that probably Paul made up. You can't find it before Colossians but you find it afterwards. So evidently, Paul made this up. A, 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 a slave where he only works when the master's eyes are on him. Don't be an eye slave. <laughs> Boy, what a statement. Not an eye slave. I'll never forget one time I was in Jamaica, and a Jamaican was showing me around a sugar refinery. They raised a lot of cane in that area, and he worked there. So he's showing me through the factory. I don't think I've ever seen a place where more people were sleeping on the job. They would take these sugar sacks and just sack out. Now, I'm sure if the boss showed up, they'd be at work right away. No, 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 don't do that. You be at make yourself a servant of the Lord, is what he is saying. Not... Uh, not not with external service, as those who please men, but with sincerity of heart. The word sincere here is is a word that means without any folds in it, without a fold. You may have a garment that looks beautiful on top, but underneath is folded, and there are huge blemishes in it. No, this is just, you see it all. You just see it all. It's without, with, with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord. That means with respect. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, fully, completely. Uh, do it as to the Lord, is, is the idea. Do it from the soul. Do it totally. As for the Lord rather than for men. Talk about hallowing the humdrum. Going through the same motions day after day. Ah, you're serving the Lord. Not just humans. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now, I can't get over that. I've got to stop here. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive. That word receive has the idea of paying back tit for tat. I am overwhelmed with that. God has placed Himself in a contract. So that anything good I do, he's going to pay back. I don't deserve it. Everything good I have, everything, without exception, everything good I have is a gift from his hand. He is not obligated to me for anything. And yet he has put himself under obligation to pay me back for anything good. And then he goes on to say this. I can't believe it. You receive the reward of the inheritance. It's an inheritance. Slaves weren't heirs. This is pure grace. We know that slaves were not heirs from Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, Here is a person who is the heir of all things, and he's put under servants. And teachers, guides, until a time pre-appointed by the Father. The slave was not an heir. And yet, God, people, God has made us to be heirs, to receive blessings from him. I'm overwhelmed with that. Slaves, low, down, despised slaves. God has put himself in obligation to them. And they receive inheritance. I move very quickly it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For the one who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Verse 25 just jangles you. Before that, grace, grace, grace. Now the one who's done wrong is going to be judged for it. What's that talking about? Well, some say it's talking about chapter 4, verse 1. Masters' is anticipating chapter before verse one. But the trouble is he doesn't deal with the person until he names the person. wives, husbands, children, fathers, masters. So some say this is looking at both masters and slaves. I think it's looking at the slaves. Slaves, you're not above reproach. Even though God is going to reward you, watch out, you may lose reward. You may be disciplined for sin. In fact, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says in chapter 11 of Paul, verse 30, For this cause many are weak among you, and some are sick, and some sleep, getting the sleep of death. God disciplines. God disciplines. So watch out. Don't take grace for granted. Now, very quickly, masters. Masters, Grant your slaves justice and fairness. Knowing that you do have a master in heaven. Don't take advantage of your position. Now let me very quickly bring this to a conclusion. I'd like to make three quick observations. I think, well, I'll just observe the first one and bring it, to, bring it up next time because we won't be able to discuss it enough. Did you notice that when you talk about slaves in the New Testament, never is slavery condemned. What does that mean? Slavery is never condemned. A fact that was not lost on slave owners before and after the Civil War. What do you do with this? Very controversial. We'll discuss this at the beginning of our next lesson. So I'll just leave it right now. Very, very interesting. Really, it's a difficult situation. So let's take a second application. What is your response when you hear your wives be in submission to your husbands? Husbands, what's your response? Love your wives with agape love. Children, Honor your father and your mother. Parents, don't exasperate your children. Slaves, be obedient. Masters, recognize that you are also under authority. Here, I would extrapolate that it's talking about labor management and relationships. That's the application I would make. That even though he's not talking about slavery, there are principles that I obtain here so that you do what's fair and right to your, to your workers. I can't ever get over the law of the Old Testament which says, don't muzzle the ox while it's shredding out the grain. I'm sure you realize by now that there are, there are, there are a couple of kinds of laws. Some laws are moral or immoral—don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. We see those as moral—they're clearly right or wrong. But there are also laws that are didactic—there's nothing right or wrong that's involved. They're there to teach something. For instance, don't wear mixed fabric every person in this room was wearing mixed fabric today, why would the law say don't wear mixed fabric? There's nothing moral or immoral about that. Or don't muzzle the ox Well, it's treading out the grain. Now you're going to feed that ox. There's nothing immoral about not feeding an ox while it's treading out the grain. That law is obviously there to teach a lesson. And it's teaching profit-sharing That ox has worked all season long. Now it comes to threshing. The crop is in. And you're not to stop that ox from stooping down at eating. So that you share your profits with your workers. You're fair. And you're just. You don't leave the impression, I'm going to give this person barely subsistence wages. I'm going to pay him the least that I can. No, you pay him as much as you can and still make a profit. Be generous in the way you get the way you pay. There there are principles that we can obtain. So here, what is your response when you look at these various things? Oh, I can't be submissive to my husband. He's just so unfair. Oh, if you only knew my wife, if you knew my wife, you couldn't love her as Christ loved it. No, you don't do that. You say speak, Lord, your servant hears. The last lesson. Lesson number one, what do we do with slavery? We'll talk about that next time. Number two, what's your response? How do you respond? That's a revelation of who you are. Number three, it all starts with Christ. All through the book of Colossians is Christ, 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 Christ. Because your eternal destiny, depends upon your relationship with Christ. I'm not asking you, are you a good citizen? I'm not asking you, are you a good person? I'm not asking you, are you a member of a church? I'm not asking you if you've been baptized. I'm not even asking if you've raised your hand or walked the aisle. What I'm asking you is, do you know Jesus? You have a spirit. Is your spirit united with God? And this is life eternal, Jesus said, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's it. Do you know Christ? Are you trying to be saved by being good? You are a miserable failure if you're trying to be saved by being good. You'll never be good enough. Our only hope is to come to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I admit that I am a sinner. Thank you for dying on the cross to pay for all of my sins. And today, November 27, 2016, I am trusting you as my own personal Savior. I welcome you into my life. If you have never done that, I plead with you. you, I beg you, right where you are right now, Just simply say, Lord Jesus, save me. Our Father God, we thank you for this very penetrating lesson where the rubber meets the road. Give us the grace to be Christian wives, Christian husbands, Christian children, Christian parents, Christian workers, Christian managers, may we glorify you. And then, Father, for those who have never trusted Christ, move in their hearts. Give them no, no, give them no rest until they trust in you. And for those who just now prayed that prayer, to say, Lord Jesus, I'm trusting you. Give them the grace to give clear testimony of this. In Jesus' name, amen.